The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, one of the things that I've always that's always intrigued me about political elections is election night. Here's why, right? Um, as the night goes on and, and the votes are, are kind of counted, right, it becomes clearer and clearer who the winner is, typically. And, and election night parties are, are a thing. Do you know about these, these election night parties? Not that we do, but like campaign parties and what they do. And sometimes for more major elections, the, the media is there kind of giving us this voyeuristic view into the campaign, right, and the candidates and all of that. And as more and more votes come in, the candidate, the one who's going to ultimately win, they, they become increasingly assured of victory, The victory is theirs, right? On and on into the night until it passes the point of certainty. Victory is declared, it's secured, it's theirs, and they rejoice. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is saying, Victory is yours. He's telling the Roman Christians, okay, he's telling me and you as Christians in Christ, we have passed the point of certainty. Victory has been declared and secured, and the result is rejoicing. Rejoice. The foundation for all this, Paul is going to tell us, is the doctrine of justification. That's what so much of chapters 1 through 4 are all about, about being justified, okay, about being counted as righteous before God. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, he said in chapter 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Now, Justification, right, just to remind us uh, of the definition that we were using from the old Baptist catechism last fall when we were looking at all this, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's a mouthful, but again, it's free. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It's free. It involves the pardoning of all of our sins, which is super important, right, because we're all sinful. When we are justified, we are accepted as righteous in his sight, not because we figured out the secret sauce, right, only because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, counted as ours. None of this is earned. It's a gift, It's received by faith alone. And so when you trust in Jesus in a saving way, listen to me, you are justified once and forever. Counted as righteous before God. And what Paul is saying in this text in in a sort of overarching way is that the deeper your understanding of justification goes, not, not just intellectually, but the deeper it goes into your soul, the greater your rejoicing will be. The the, the greater your your joy will be. 
Go ahead and open up your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 5 if you haven't already. You're not going to want to miss this. You're not going to want to just sort of sit back and read it on a screen. You're going to want to have this in your lap because you're going to want to take it home and you're going to open it this week and saturate yourself in it. Okay, so open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, take that pew Bible that's in front of you. It's yours now. Bring it back next week, but it's yours now, okay? We're going to be on page 942, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is going to be a test if you've got it open or not, because it's not on the screen yet, is it? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Look at the very first word here. It's so important. What's the, what's the very first word of Romans chapter 5, verse 1? What is it? Therefore. Therefore. Listen, in one sense, the secret to the entire Christian life is to know how to use this word, therefore. All of chapters one through four, in a sense, have been leading up to this therefore. Therefore bridges the gap between who God is and what he's done on one hand and who we are because of it on the other. It stands in between what we would call the indicatives of of Scripture and the imperatives of Scripture, the truths about who God is, what he's done, and then who we are, how we're supposed to live our lives in light of that. It's a tipping point that says, because of everything that comes before the therefore, this is what's now true of you. Think of the election illustration. The therefore occurs just past the tipping point on election night, doesn't it? Because you've won the election, some things are are now true of you. You've got a new role. You've got a new title, responsibilities, maybe an office, all that sort of stuff. It's yours now. Paul is saying something very similar. Therefore, since. Do you see it? Since what? Since we have been, what's the next word? Justified. Yes. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, right? Since we have been, have been. If I were you, I would underline the words have been in that copy of God's word in front of you. Have been. This is past tense for Christians. Okay, if you are truly a Christian, you have been justified. You're not trying to live your life in such a way that you will one day become justified. You're not hoping to be justified. You're not working really hard to get justified. You're you're not trying to do your life in such a way that you can one day stand before God at the pearly gates and, and somehow justify yourself. No, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity teaches us that if you are truly a Christian, listen, you're a has been. You're a have been. You have been justified. It's the left side of the therefore. And now, therefore, since, (laughs) therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have some things. Three of them, actually, and this is what I want us to see today. First, Paul is going to tell us about three benefits of justification. Three benefits. Secondly, two proofs that the benefits are yours. Two proofs. And thirdly, one appropriate response. Three, two, one. Ready or not, we're back in Romans, right? Good. The first benefit of our justification that Paul lays out for us here comes immediately in verse one. It's super clear. It's right in your lap. What is it? It's peace. Peace. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Now, peace is something that we all crave, don't we? I mean, seriously, who wouldn't want a little bit more peace in their lives? The world, for crying out loud, in all kinds of ways, is crying out loud for peace. Oftentimes, when I ask someone, hey, how can I be praying for you? How can I keep you in prayer? Oftentimes someone will describe a circumstance or a challenge in their life, maybe a difficult relationship or something like that, and I'll say, okay, now how how can I specifically be praying for you in that difficult circumstance or challenge or relationship? And the answer typically is peace, very often. Would you pray that I would have peace? We all want it. We all want it. The opposite of peace is what we see in Ukraine right now, isn't it? War. And when we say we want peace, the reason we want peace or crave peace is because it feels like there's a little war going on inside of us. Now lean in a little bit and listen to me super carefully here. That kind of peace is not what Paul's talking about in this text. Not in this verse. Paul is not talking about a lack of fear or anxiety, or stress. He's not talking about your troubles with your in-laws. He's not talking about the circumstantial wars going on inside of you. Now, as Christians, we get that kind of peace too. Praise God. We do. The Bible calls it the peace of God. That's what Jesus had in mind in part when he says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's what we have in Colossians 3.15 when we read that the peace of, of God, is, the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. That's the peace of Christ, the peace of God, which surpasses, right, even understanding and, and will guard your heart and your mind no matter what you're anxious about, Philippians tells us. The peace of God will do that. What Paul's talking about here in Romans 5.1, though, is peace with God. Do you see that? There's a big difference. The peace being described in Romans 5.1 is objective rather than subjective. Both are biblical, but I would contend the peace of God only comes as a result of peace with God. Here's why that's so important. We all want peace. Subjectively. We all want peace in the pains and problems, the little battlefields of our lives. We want peace. Some of you may have come here this morning specifically searching for that kind of peace, and that's good. Listen, you're in the right place, but what Paul wants us to understand in this verse isn't that kind of peace. He wants us to understand a much more significant kind of peace. In light of the earlier chapters of Romans, what we ought to understand is that prior to, on the other side of the therefore, prior to being justified with God, we don't have peace with God, we have war with God. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. That ought to be way scarier to us than World War III. God is giving unbelievers over to the lusts of their hearts. We didn't see fit to acknowledge God and worship God. We were at war with God and without excuse, it says. Without a defense. No one is righteous, chapter 3. No, not one. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Paul says in Ephesians, we're therefore children of wrath. At war with God, not at peace. But, then we were justified. (laughs) And this is true of all who have trusted in Jesus. And it's not true for those who haven't. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're searching for circumstantial peace for a little battle in your life, listen, let me first let you know there's a war going on between you and God. And until that war is settled, you'll never have lasting peace in the smaller problems and pains of your life. How is that war settled? By trusting in Jesus. It's not something you have to work for or earn or pay for. That war is settled by placing your faith in Jesus. And when that happens, you're justified. All your sins pardoned. His righteousness is imputed. That means counted as yours. It's a pretty good exchange. It's a pretty good deal. And believers in the room, listen up. For you, that already happened. It already happened. That's what the therefore was all about. Remember, therefore, since, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first benefit of justification that Paul lays out for us here. And he's not exhorting you to find peace with God. No, no, no. As those justified by grace through faith, he's explaining to you what you already have. It was accomplished for you, the text says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Take God's. It's yours. And it is secure. The election has been called. You, my friend, are the winner. And peace with God is a consequence, a benefit of being justified. Listen, you, dear Christian. Have peace with God. You don't have to worry about whether you're good with him or not. It was finished on the cross. There's there's no more wondering for you. There's no more wavering. Am I in? Am I out? Am I good with him? Am I not? All that's gone now because of the cross. Because of justification. The war is over. Peace reigns now. And you can't wiggle your way out of it by failing at consistency in your spiritual disciplines. You can't underperform your way out of it. Whether you're, you know, serving or giving, oh, I'm not good enough. None of that. You can't can't sin your way out of it. And when the enemy whispers or screams, lies into your ear that you do not have peace with God, you open up to Romans chapter 5 right here and you tell him, wrong, mister. Wrong. Since I have been justified, I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the second benefit of our justification that Paul lays out for us here is in verse 2. 
It says, through him we have also obtained, also, there's more, also, through him we have also obtained, past tense, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We've obtained access. Once we didn't have access, now though, since we have been justified, because we have been justified, we have it. Access. You know, it's becoming popular among doctors and certain kind of doctors in different realms to be more accessible to their patients. Have you experienced any of this? If not, sorry. Um, maybe there's a monthly, fee, a monthly fee that you pay um, that, that kind of gets you this access. You kinda, you're on the end now. You've got this. And some of them will even give you like a number that you can text. Can you imagine texting the doctor? It's incredible. Some of us, we, we, we get to enjoy a little bit of that. You got health questions. Something comes up, just shoot him a text. Hey, doc, what's up? Got a little thing on my arm. What's going on with it? Once, you didn't have that access, right? Now, though, because of your payment, you do. Paul is saying here that since you have been justified, you have access. Listen, Jesus made the payment. Justification is once forever. He's paid the price for your access by his blood. Cost him a lot, but he paid it. Now you have access, not to some doctor, but rather to the very throne room of the great physician of the soul, God himself. You've been granted access to him, to his grace. You're now in the the realm of, of grace, and you remain there. You stand there. In fact, you're never not there. Wherever you go, you're always in the heavenly throne room with the great physician of the soul. How? Because you've obtained access. I hope you see this goes way beyond peace with God, like some ceasefire agreement. It extends now into the notion of relationship, friendship with God. You and I, through Jesus, have entered into a privileged position of grace. We stand before him in an entirely new manner now. Not just at peace, as friends. That means God doesn't look upon you as one that he had to end the war for. He looks upon you as his beloved He's not wagging a finger at you and then pointing to the cross with the other hand and saying, look what you made me do. No, instead, his loving arms are open saying, look what I made possible. Enjoy what I made possible. Access. (laughs) Full access. Nonstop access, 24-7, 365, including weekends and holidays. You have access to God. You're in. You're not outside anymore. You're never going to be outside again. There's nothing uncertain about this. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, he says. We stand. We are set in it, established in it, firmly rooted in it. 
The word stand implies stability and security. Paul here is concerned with you understanding not merely that you have access and, and friendship with God, but even more that you're secure in it. It's incredible. You're not going to lose it. Why? Because you have been justified. That's why. Have been. Think about it. When, when, when you sin as a Christian, and we all do, when, when you sin, if you think, oh no, I lost it. Really what you're saying is, I had it because I was good. But when you understand that your justification is entirely by Jesus, you must also see that even though you fall into sin, even though you battle with sin and lose sometimes, it's still true. You have peace. You have access. You have it securely. Justification isn't a process. It's once and forever. Sanctification and our growth, that's progressive. Meaning, as we live out the Christian life, we grow more and more like Christ, less sinful, more quick in our repentance. We see transformation happen, not perfection, but progress. We call it progressive sanctification. But listen, justification is not progressive. We do not become progressively justified. Since you have been justified once and forever through Jesus, you also have obtained access once and forever by faith into this grace in which we stand. Thirdly, third benefit, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's a, that's a fun line to sing. What does it mean, you know? Well, break it down a little bit. First, he says we rejoice, okay? We, we celebrate. As Christians, man, Christians ought to be some of the best partiers in the world because we have the most to celebrate than anyone in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's party. We rejoice. And next, he says, in the hope. In the hope. Now, hope is a word that we need to understand. When, when, we, when we use this word hope in our normal lives, we mean something completely different usually than what the Bible means by it. We usually mean that we want something or we want something to happen that we're not certain about. Like, I hope I get to have nachos for lunch today. I don't, I mean, I hope, you know, it's not certain, but I'm, I'm, I kind of hope that's how it turns out. That's what I want, you know. And biblical hope, on the other hand, is certain. It's not uncertain like my nachos craving. Biblical hope is a joyful and confident expectation which rests upon the promises of God. In other words, our hope is certain because we know God will fulfill his promises. It's a definite anticipation. That's what hope is. And so we rejoice, we celebrate in the hope, the joyful, confident expectation of the glory of God. That's a clunky phrase to us a little bit. Notice first, it's the object of our hope, isn't it? The object of our hope is the glory of God, his splendor, his majesty, his magnificence, his importance and, and weightiness. That's, what we're going, that's kind of what we're getting at when we talk about the glory of God. What does it mean then to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Well, think about what we know about God's glory. First and foremost, it's already being revealed, is it not? 
Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Secondly, the glory of God has been uniquely made manifest in the incarnation of Jesus. John 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus prays in John 17 that God would glorify Him in His resurrection too. But then it, man, it goes so much further. So much further. One day, the curtains are going to be pulled back in full. Right? And the glory of God is going to be displayed in full. Titus 2 talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 says that on that day when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Meaning, we will not only see his glory, we are going to be changed into it, brothers and sisters. We'll be perfected, glorified, all sin, gone, all wounds, gone, all baggage and weaknesses, gone. We will receive our resurrected and perfected bodies and they will be, they will be paired with our perfected sin-free souls. Which is why Paul is then able to say in 2 Thessalonians 1, when he comes on that day, <laughs> when he comes on that day, he's going to be glorified in us, in the saints. <laughs> then... <laughs> When we were, we, then when we who were created in the image and the glory of God, who through sin have fallen short of the glory of God, will again in full measure share in the glory of God as children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we would also be glorified with him. At that time, creation itself, which groans now, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, everything, everyone, everywhere is going to be suffused with the glory of God. And we'll dwell with him in his glorious presence forever. We're going to see him. Like we're, we're going to live with him. Everything that is broken is going to be unbroken. Everything that hurts is going to unhurt. Our sorrows will turn to dancing. And we will party like Christian rock stars with Jesus in ways that nobody has ever seen before. All of this is included in the phrase, the glory of God. All of this, this beautific vision for the future, for eternity, for the restoration of all things, since we have been justified, we rejoice in this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You and I have a definite anticipation. Definite. It's certain. And it's certain for you if you've been justified. You might be thinking, okay, Romans, you know, peace with God, okay, get that, access, have access to him, hope, sounds like a future thing. Um, and that sounds lovely, it's not way better than the nachos hope that I got, you know. Uh, evidently, it's, it's, it's pretty good, but what about Mondays? 
I mean, life is complex, and, and sure, when things are going okay in my life, I can focus on these three benefits, but what difference does it make in the hardness of my life? What about all the little battlefields and circumstances and challenges that, by the way, haven't gone away? What about suffering? What difference does justification make in your suffering? When hope seems like a far-off distant stream, well, Paul answers, it makes every difference. Your justification makes every difference in the here and now. Verse 3, not only that. Can we admit that was a lot? Not only that, he says. Not only that, but much more than that, my translation says. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Notice that we don't, we don't rejoice for our sufferings. Some do in this life, receiving suffering as punishment that they think they deserve in order to deal with a sense of guilt or unworthiness. We don't do that. The gospel takes care of our guilt and unworthiness. He isn't saying we rejoice in spite of them either, as if though these things are happening, we will still go on glorying, focusing on the positive, perhaps pretending in some stoic way like the pain isn't real. He also isn't saying here that we rejoice in the midst of them. Though we do, and are able to rejoice in the midst of suffering because our source of joy, Jesus himself, our peace with him, our access to him, our hope of the future glory, none of that is touchable by the sufferings of this life. And so we're able to rejoice in the midst of them. That's a right truth, wrong text. What he's saying here is that in the midst of suffering, we're able to rejoice because we know that suffering has some beneficial results. We know it. Knowing, knowing this, he says. Namely, our sufferings conspire to produce greater hope. You say, how does that work? I'm glad you asked, because I think it's actually one of the most important things for 21st century American Christians to understand. In this world, Jesus says, you're going to have troubles. The next thing he said, don't freak out. Todd translation, Okay. Count it even all joy, James says. When you meet trials of various kinds, why? Well, because suffering, when it comes, it creates a chain reaction. First, suffering produces endurance, verse 3. And if suffering is what produces endurance, listen, we cannot learn endurance without suffering. Without suffering, there'd be nothing to endure. Endurance here means constancy. It means steadfastness. Your translation might say perseverance. Suffering, have, have you found this to be true? It, it has a way of putting sort of everything else in perspective. When suffering comes along, little things kind of cease to matter, at least as much as they used to. Additionally, questions come up when suffering comes. Is God really with me? Is God really sovereign? Is he really good? Sometimes there's a journey here. looks different for all of us. We may journey off a bit exploring those questions, doubting for a season even, but the true Christian always comes back. It may be an hour, maybe a week, maybe a year or more, but the true Christian returns. 
the, the true Christian returns and eventually, if not right away, says, God is really with me. God is really sovereign. He really is good. He's not left me. He's not forsaken me. He's been with me, and he'll continue. <laughs> and he's to be prized over all. The true Christian is able to rejoice even in suffering that, praise God, I have peace with him through Jesus. I have access to him even in my suffering. And he will one day return and fix this whole mess called my life. When you go through a season of suffering, that's the first thing God is up to. He's producing endurance in you. Now, you might be able to apply that. You know, you, you might be able to apply that to something from, I don't know, the last two years, <laughs> right? Listen, the last two years have been hard, and you're still here. You're still here. Sure, you may have had some doubts. You may have, you might still have some. You might have some questions, some hurts. I do too. You're still here. Take heart. In the midst of your pain, God is producing endurance in you. He's making you stronger, more constant in your communion with him, more steadfast in your faith with him. He's stripping away other things that you rely on, showing you more intensely your need for him. He's lifting your eyes off the fulfillments of this world and placing them on him and the beatific vision for the future glory when he returns. He is increasing your hunger, your thirst for heaven. He's working this chain reaction. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance, then, he says, produces character. Tested character, proven character. The amplified version of the Bible renders this spiritual maturity. And while I'm not sure that's the, the best exact translation, it communicates the point. There's a spiritual maturity that comes through enduring a certain trial, isn't there? It may be a heightened sense of what actually matters. It might be a heightened sense of the presence of God. Maturity might look like a, a deeper communion with him. I've walked with a lot of Christians who have said that they, they have a greater sense of their communion and closeness with God in a time of suffering than in a time when they're not suffering. Why? Because they need him. They've always needed him. But in the time of suffering, their awareness of their need of him is sharpened and heightened and strengthened. It might look like a less anxious presence because of what God has taken you through or allowed you to go through. There's a testedness to this, proven character. You've grown more familiar with suffering now and how to remain connected with God and to the body through it. I'm not saying it's always pretty. It's often ugly. Ups and downs, good days, bad days, but through it, you're growing. You're growing in how to rest in the glorious certain truths of Romans 8. That neither life nor death nor anything else can separate you from the love of God. And you'll see that same certainty here in Romans 5. Notice here that there's no uncertainty in what Paul said. Paul doesn't say suffering can sometimes, if you handle it correctly and aren't a wimp about it, produce endurance and so on. That's not what he says. No, he says with certainty 
The same certainty of the glorious truths of Romans 8. Suffering produces endurance. It does in the Christian. Endurance produces character. It does in the Christian. And this kind of character, tested, proven, produces hope because we see that God saw us through. He didn't leave you, and he never will. This hasn't separated you from his love, and nothing can. You're still here. Hope here, then, is a stronger assurance of your justification that you're a has-been. A stronger assurance of and confidence in your peace with God, your access to him, and the promised future of glory that awaits you. The benefits of justification, peace, access, and hope, and this kind of hope, Paul writes in verse 5, doesn't put us to shame. Okay, we're, we're not naive religious nincompoops for believing this stuff. It's real. It's real. These benefits are real and they're yours. And he goes on now to give us two proofs that these benefits are yours. The first from verse 5, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so the first proof that these benefits are yours is that you experience the love of God which has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian knows something of this. We could call it subjective proof, like an experiential proof. The Holy Spirit, see, lives inside every single Christian. And one of the things the Holy Spirit does is make us deeply, refreshingly aware that God loves us. That he's justified us. That he's pardoned our sin and put us in right standing with himself. Paul says it this way in chapter 8. The spirit himself witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. Now this ebbs and flows in my experience. There's a a, a certain level of, of constancy to it. And yet the strength or intensity increases and decreases. Waxes and wanes. Typically depending on how closely I'm walking with Jesus. Sometimes this experiential, subjective sense of the proof that we've been justified is so intense, so overwhelming, that you almost just erupt with joy. Like you're, you're singing a song, and all of a sudden you start crying, and people are like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And it's, it's okay because you're just crying because you're so overwhelmed with this sense of God's love being poured into your heart. It overflows and comes out your tear ducts. That's how it works, I think. Pretty sure that's how it works. Well, sometimes it's way more elusive. Sometimes it's easy to tap into it on our own through reading the Bible and prayer. Other times we need to place ourselves in the streams of grace, of corporate worship, singing, fellowship, other things like that to experience it or be reminded of it. Regardless, though, of the ebb and flow of the subjective proof, true Christians also know that their subjective apprehension of their justification does not float free from an anchor in history but rather is deeply and firmly rooted in the objective work of Christ on the cross. Paul's reasoning goes like this. Think about it. He says, while we were still weak, verse 6, ungodly at the end of 6, still sinners, verse 8, 
enemies, verse 10. While all those things were true, God shows or demonstrates his love for us, verse 8, that while we were in that state, Christ died for us. We weren't able to accomplish it ourselves. We were weak and powerless. We sure as heck didn't merit it. We were ungodly and still sinners. We didn't have it together and couldn't get it together. And we didn't deserve it. What we deserved was the opposite. We were his enemies in a war. Hardly ever, he says, though, once in a while, would someone die for a righteous man? But we weren't righteous. We were unrighteous. For a good person? Paul's like, maybe, you know. But God shows his love for us in this. There's an objective display of the love of Christ and an objective proof of our justification. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place, on the cross, for our sins. He took on the wrath that we deserved in the war with God. And in turn, we have been justified by his blood. Our sin has been pardoned. His righteousness imputed. We're counted. It's counted as ours. And if God would do that then, back then, on the other side of the therefore, if he would justify us, put us in right standing with him once and forever, granting us peace, reconciling us is the word that he uses in verse 10, granting us that access, granting us that hope, if he would do all of that while we were his enemies, much more, he says. Much more now that we are justified and reconciled shall we be saved by his life, spared from the wrath to come in the day of judgment as his friends. The two proofs, subjective and objective. The subjective is great. I mean, to feel that, especially with intensity, is to feel like nothing else, isn't it? And yet the subjective is 100% rooted in the objective. When the subjective wanes, maybe it's waning for you today, saturate yourself in the objective truths. When the subjective experience wanes, the objective truth holds fast. As steadfast as the historical events of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It was a demonstration. A proof. One that you can look to over and over again in the pages of scripture and be assured of your justification and all the benefits that are yours because of it. Lastly then, after the three benefits of our justification, the two proofs that the benefits are yours, there's only one appropriate response. Verse 11. More than that. <laughs> that was a lot, right? More than that. We also rejoice. It's the only appropriate response. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Even here, he can't stop talking about the peace. He can't stop talking about the fact that we're friends of God. The reconciliation between us and him. But even as great as that is, the gift, the benefit, is not more important than the one who gives it. God himself. And therefore... We rejoice in him. Rejoicing in his love. Rejoicing 
in his glory, rejoicing in his perfect plan to send Jesus for us at the right time. Dying for us, justifying us, reconciling us. We see that from eternity past to eternity future, it's all his plan to glorify himself and save his people. And we rejoice in him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the deeper your understanding of justification goes, the greater your rejoicing will be. Let me close just in this way. Instead of me just praying over us this morning, I actually want to invite you to kind of pray along with me here. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to do some work with us from this text. Father, we sit in this room now and we open ourselves to you. We open ourselves to you. Grounded in and guided by your word, your objective truth, we open ourselves to your Holy Spirit. Remove our distractions. Father, if there's anyone here today who is at war with you, would you reveal it to them now? Open their hearts to pay attention to your word. Open their hearts to believe that through Jesus, they too can be justified. Cause them to believe even right now, Lord. Father, so many in this room for whom this is already true. Would you deepen our understanding of our justification? Take it deeper into our soul, we pray. Help us to believe and rejoice in. Right now, we have peace with you. No more wandering. Help us to believe and rejoice in. Right now, we have access to you. You see us. You hear us. You're with us. Help us to believe and rejoice right now in the hope of your glory, your return. Even in suffering. And Lord, I know there are people in this room right now who are in the midst of it. Help us to believe 
and even rejoice in the fact that you are producing endurance, character, hope. We're still here. Help us, Holy Spirit, even to look backwards upon trials and afflictions that you have seen us through and the the benefits that you have wrought in us. We're still here. Strengthen our hope because we're still here. Our hope in you. Prove to us, Spirit of God, that these benefits are ours. Awaken us to the love of God that you have poured into our hearts, Spirit. Make us wildly aware of it right now, maybe even in an overwhelming way. Holy Spirit, bear witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, your children. ground us evermore in the rock-solid objective truth of your word, that while we were still weak, you came for us. While we were still sinners, you died for us, justified us. Help us to understand it deeper in our souls and increase our joy. We pray this. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.